Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. In the early modern Europe, queens did not come fully formed. A series of rites, rituals, and ceremonies transformed a hesitant bride into a fully-fledged monarch. And beneath all these contracts and customs were real, live women, their emotions running high as they left behind their birth families and embarked on an exciting and terrifying journey into a foreign land to marry a stranger. The royal families of Europe were intricately interconnected. Queens-to-be travelled and married across the continent. And so it makes sense to study how one became a queen by looking comparatively at different European countries. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Katarzyna Kozio, lecturer at Northumbria University and the author of Becoming a Queen in Early Modern Europe, to think about two closely connected dynasties, the Valois of France and the Jagiellonians of Poland, the latter so often excluded from pan-European studies. But along the way, we'll also encounter Italian, Spanish and Portuguese brides. Becoming a queen in early modern Europe was a tough business. And Dr. Corsia is going to show us how it was done. Katarzyna, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors and to talk about this idea of becoming a queen in early modern Europe. Your book of the same name is very interesting because it insists that we need to consider Poland when we're thinking about Europe. And it points out how many studies to date that sort of say that they're studies of Europe as a whole, pan-European studies, actually omit Eastern Europe. Why do you think that's happened and what damage do you think that omission has done? Thank you very much for having me, first of all. I'll start with the why. And I think this is something that Norman Davis has written about before, which is because there have been divisions in Europe in the 20th century, the Iron Curtain, there's this idea that there's very little that links Western Europe to Central and Eastern Europe. Whereas, in fact, those divisions of the 20th century do not really work for the earlier periods because they were non-existent then. And in fact, Poland, Poland-Lithuania, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, the union of the two states, was deeply integrated in the European landscape politically, culturally, and of course through the marriage network of the kings of Poland. So what I think we miss by looking especially at certain phenomena like ceremony or culture, is 
when we talk about European, say the European Renaissance or the European Royal Ceremony, we talk about it without in actually including all of Europe. So we don't have a full picture of what these issues actually are unless we include Poland Lithuania, which was in the 15th and then in the 16th century, one of the largest monarchies on the continent. Perhaps you can tell us a bit more about the two countries on which you've chosen to focus in this time, France and Poland-Lithuania, and their two dynasties. They're very different. France, already probably much better known, already in the 16th century, starts this turn towards centralisation of the monarchy, towards limiting representation from other parts of society. So the French parliament, the States General, becomes basically defunct by the end of the century. Poland Lithuania goes a very different way and it becomes unique. Probably Poland Lithuania in some ways is similar to England in that you have a king who rules with a bicameral parliament. And this parliament is strengthened through the 15th and 16th century. So the Polish kings sign away their rights to legislate, to impose new taxes and to go to war without the consent of parliament. So this is very different, two very different monarchies we're talking about. And of course, the dynasties are very different too. We have the Valois, who in France, who are used to the king being the centre of secular authority. And on the other side, we have the Jagiellonians, who are actually a Lithuanian dynasty. So at the end of the 14th century, Poland has a little queen regnant, she's 10, Jadwiga. And the Polish nobles ask the Grand Duke of Lithuania, Władysław Jagiełło, to become king of Poland and marry Jadwiga. And this is the start of the Jagiellonian dynasty and also the personal union between Poland and Lithuania. So this is the start of this enormous monarchy that survives then until the end of the 18th century. So the Polish kings, Grand Dukes of Lithuania, have to navigate a very different political landscape where they have to negotiate in parliament, not just politics, but also their own marriages, there is very strict opposition, for example, to marriages made without the parliament's consent, as was the case in the 16th century with Sigismund August and Barbara Radziwiłł. When the king married her secretly in 1547, and when this was revealed, a special parliament was held just to criticise the marriage, to try to convince the king to divorce her that it would be no great sin, that he's bringing everyone in disrepute by not marrying a foreign important princess. So it is very different. It is very different. That's a very clear introduction to the Valois and the Aguilonians. But can you tell us a bit about some of the women, some of the brides that we're going to mention in the course of thinking about ceremony? Perhaps the most famous one is Bona Sforza. She is an Italian princess, the daughter of the Duke of Milan, Gian Galazzo Sforza, and Isabella of Aragon. She was the daughter of the King of Naples. Her family was ousted from Milan 
and she grew up in Naples. And then her marriage was arranged to Sigismund the Old of Poland, Lithuania. The couple married in 1518. She was incredibly clever, had her own ideas about politics. She tried to steer the Polish foreign policy. She accumulated a lot of land, this being permitted by her husband, who was convinced by her good management of the lands she had. She introduced wide-ranging reforms that made the lands more profitable. Then she gave birth to five children, including Sigismund August. And his wives were very interesting too. One of them we've mentioned already, Barbara Radziwiłł. But she was preceded by Elizabeth of Austria. Sigismund and Elizabeth married in 1543. And unfortunately, there's been this conflict between Elizabeth and her mother-in-law, Bona Sforza. Bona disliked her daughter-in-law because she disliked the Habsburgs. She thought that Poland Lithuania needs to bind closely with France against the Habsburgs because she worried about either parts of Poland or entire Poland becoming just part of the empire in one way or another. So young Elizabeth died quite young. She had epilepsy. She was quite unwell for long stretches of time. She died in 1545. And then, of course, Sigismund made his secret marriage to a widow in Lithuania to Barbara Radziwiłł. And again, this was a quite a short marriage. Barbara died in 1551, and historians think she died of something like cervical cancer. And this is, in many ways, a very beautiful love story where, at the end, because basically the illness went in such a way that there was this terrible smell around Barbara, and only Ziggis was left there with her to care for her. So it was a real love story. After Barbara died, Sigismund then married again. He married Elizabeth's sister, Catherine of Austria. So again, dispensations had to be made because he was not only getting married to the sister of his deceased first wife, but also they were also first cousins. So the Pope had to be involved in granting dispensations. And the marriage was okay for a while. The issue was with producing children. Sigismund had no legitimate children and Catherine was pregnant or said she was pregnant, but the birth never materialized. So there was various rumors about whether she was pretending or whether this was some sort of court intrigue or whether she miscarried and the couple became estranged from each other. She ended up living back in Austria and they actually died in the same year, 1572. And after that, Poland-Lithuania enters this quite turbulent period because the monarchy in Poland-Lithuania is theoretically elective at the time, but the Jagiellonians keep themselves re-elected because of son after father because to keep up that union with Lithuania, because they're a Lithuanian dynasty. But in 1569, there is a constitutional union between Poland and Lithuania, which means that removes the dynastic element from the union. And so the elections after the 
the death of Sigismund August in 1572 become open to anyone, pretty much. You know, the sort of princely and royal houses. Sigismund doesn't have a son or a brother, but he has a sister, Anna Jagiellon. And she becomes a really important figure in the elections, and she ends up being married to Stefan Batore, who is elected in 1576. And she is the last Jagiellonian queen of Poland, Lithuania, as it were. Thank you for that really fascinating introduction. Now, we're going to be thinking about the ceremonies of becoming a queen. So let's, I guess, start at the very beginning of how a royal marriage was formed. How was it arranged? First of all, you would think about the direction of foreign policy and who you'd like to make an alliance with. So, for example, when Sigismund the Old, at the beginning of the 16th century, was considering his marriages, he thought about making an alliance with the Habsburgs. So the Emperor Maximilian, Maximilian I, proposed a couple of candidates. One of them was Bona Sforza. She was related to Maximilian's wife. So this is how this comes about. And then, of course, they get into negotiations, mostly about money about what's going to be included, who's going to give how much, how much is the family going to give, is Maximilian going to give or provide anything else? And then, of course, there is the logistics. So the king's ambassadors have to go to Italy to fetch Bonner, but of course it wouldn't be quite proper for the princess to travel unmarried. So they hold a marriage by proxy. And this is highly ceremonial. This is where a marriage ceremony is held at the place, at the sort of native court of the princess, where the king's ambassador stands in for his master. So for Bonner, this happened in Naples, a Castel Capuano in Naples, on the 6th of December, 1517. And the Polish king's ambassador basically, so it's got to be symbolic, it's got to be special gestures, it's got to be ceremonial, but it cannot actually be improper because she's still going to be the king's wife. So the way they resolve this is make those sort of very symbolic gestures. So the Polish ambassador kissed his two hands, then he placed them on the queen's forehead and then kissed them again. So this was the sort of physical sign of a marriage by proxy. Well, now the Habsburgs really liked to also hold what they called a consummation by proxy. And I think this happened in England as well. For example, for Mary Tudor, who went to marry Louis XII of France. So this, a similar custom took place at the Habsburg court. So the two Habsburg wives of Sigismund August had to go through this ordeal. And we have the story, especially of Catherine of Austria, who was told by her father Ferdinand and her brother Maximilian to get into bed with the Polish ambassador. This is what the consummation by proxy looked like. So they had to sit on the bed, dressed, and then basically touch their legs together. And it was all witnessed. This was what the ceremony was. But Catherine, of course, was not keen on the Polish marriage more generally 
because she knew that Sigismund August did not treat her older sister, right? <laughs> Neglected her. So she had to be taken by force by her father and her brother. They put her onto the bed. And then as soon as they let her go, she sort of leapt out of bed, of course, very, quite distressed. So these ceremonies could be quite difficult. And most often what we get are these slightly impersonal accounts of them where the queen is happy and the princess is uh, just happy to be marrying the king. And very rarely we get those tense moments which reveal that actually for those people, these were real events and bound up with their ideas about the upcoming marriage. I think that's so interesting because I wonder the extent to which women at this time are at all involved in the process of their husband being chosen for them. We always hear about portraits of women being sent across Europe to be viewed by various men that they might marry. Do the portraits go the other way as well? Are men's portraits sent to women? Is there any sense that they need to give their approval or is it just so much a case of a dynastic union that what the women think doesn't really matter? So they have to be asked. So the consent is asked, but how it's actually solicited is another matter. A good example of this is actually one of Sigismund August's sisters, Catherine, who became the Queen of Sweden. And the proposal was made, she agreed. But then afterwards, Sigismund came and asked her again, and so there are three people present, Sigismund, Catherine, and her older sister, Anna. And Catherine sort of broke down and started having doubts about the marriage. And Anna stepped in and said, she agreed already, do not ask her again. She's going to do it, essentially. So again, most of the time we get the happy princess, the she's delighted, like I think with Mary of England, when she was marrying Louis Twelfth of France, there's this report going around that she didn't care that the king was old. <laughs> she was just happy to be the queen of France. So this is what we get most often. But occasionally, again, we get those moments of tension where the princess is actually being either outright forced or sadly led into this. I'm not aware, actually, of too many portraits being sent around. I think it is mostly portraits of potential brides being sent. So we get this great report about Sigismund the Old getting a portrait of Bonner Sforza and how his heart wept or something like that, that he was so delighted that she was so beautiful. But this could go quite badly as well with, for example, Anne of Cleves and Henry VIII of England. When she arrived, I think he said, well, she's not quite as in the portrait. <laughs> so it sort of backfired this. Yes, of course. The reason I was asking is because I remember that one of the portraits that we have of Henry VII in the National Portrait Gallery is often said to be a kind of betrothal portrait and perhaps therefore sent you know, with the intention of persuading somebody into marriage. And I always wonder whether you know Anne of Cleves had actually seen a picture of Henry and was just as disappointed herself. But the idea about emotions is a really interesting one because one idea that I thought was 
very interesting in your book is this idea that the weddings are rites of separation as much as they are rites of attachment. And emotions must have been running really high. I mean, many of these women would never see their birth families again. And in some cases, they had to leave behind children from previous marriages. Is there any way of accessing their feelings in the sources that survive? Or is it just in these moments of protest that you've already mentioned? We actually have a very good idea of the sort of emotions that accompanied the departure of Bonasforza from Italy. Her mother, who was very devoted to her, Isabella of Aragon. So the Polish ambassadors wanted to speed things up. Sigismund was waiting. They wanted to have a spring wedding and coronation. But Isabella was stalling. So first of all, she was evading the Polish ambassadors. So she was travelling around in the south of Italy and they were getting to where she was supposed to be and she was somewhere else already. So that was part of it. And then again, the marriage by proxy took place on the 6th of December and Bonnet didn't set out until a bit later in that winter because, again, Isabella was stalling. She didn't want to part from her daughter and, of course, she had people sent with Bonner. One of them was a poet who described in great detail Bonner's journey, and this was meant to be then delivered to Isabella. Isabella also wanted to come and visit Poland, but she died as she was sort of planning the visit in 1524. So it's very unfortunate, of course, those brides were separated from their families and mostly never to see them again. I think there's also the sentiment that they keep in many cases for, you know, their native realms. Bonus Forta ends up going back for the last year of her life because she still has lands in Italy. Same Catherine of Austria ends up moving back to Austria after she becomes estranged from her husband. There is also the case of Eleanor of Austria, the wife of Francis I, and her daughter from her first marriage, and she had to leave her behind in Portugal. And afterwards, after she becomes widowed, she goes back to basically be with her daughter. So these relationships, I think, were still quite strong. Even though those people would wait months for a letter, Bona's mother would wait for months to get a letter from her daughter. But nevertheless, I think they kept thinking about each other. I'm sure that's the case. Have you ever wondered if those pointy medieval shoes gave you bunions? Would you be friends with someone who had leprosy in the Middle Ages? And what on earth does that Bluetooth symbol on your phone have to do with the Vikings? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval we find those answers for you, talking everything from saints to sacrifices, runes to relics, sex to science. Join me, Dr Kat Jarman, and my co-host Matt Lewis for everything from berserkers to battles and runes to raids. Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Don Wildman, and on American History Hit, my expert guests and I journey across the nation and through the years to uncover the stories that have made the United States. From first flight to first ladies, from stitching the star-spangled banner to striking gold in California, to shooting for the moon with Apollo. We've got you covered. 
catch new episodes of American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit, every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. So let's think about that journey, that sort of nuptial travel. What did they pack? <laughs> what was in their wedding trousseaus? What's the protocol of the travel? Um, all the way up to that first moment of encounter with their new husband-to-be. They packed the most extraordinary things. For example, an entire chapel for the queen to have. And it was just mostly for the travelling purposes. And then, of course, she would set it up in her new home. An extraordinary amount of clothes. But also, interestingly, for example, Bonner brings several items for Sigismund to give to him later as well. So things are picked out in Italy for him to wear in Poland, which is great. And then the travel could be actually quite dangerous. So we get Mary of England almost drowning, crossing the channel. And then Bonas Forza, she had a simile. So she travelled by ship up to what is now Croatia from southern Italy and then from there, she travelled by, you know, carriage horse up to Vienna. Because, of course, what the travel has to include are those networks of power and marriage networks. So Bonner's journey had to take in Vienna because the marriage was arranged by the emperor. So he had to sort of participate in the process of the marriage, even if it was just by welcoming Bonner in Vienna and, you know, hosting her there and her party for a while. But you get, you know, all sorts of adventures on the way, crossing a river, there's a broken carriage, and then there is all of the turbulent stormy seas coming up from Italy, which are, of course, sometimes quite exaggerated for the purposes of narrating the events. So Patrick Pasternak, for example, argued that Bonner's journey is very stormy at the beginning and then the closer she gets to Poland, the better the weather. So it's very symbolic of she's travelling into this haven of marriage and everything becomes sunny and it's spring. So I think sometimes we have to be careful about how we read those texts as well. And what did they were to meet their husbands to be. Did that choice of clothing have significance? Of course, it was highly coordinated. So normally they would wear matching clothes. So this would be agreed in advance about what would be worn. And then the couples would show up matching. So all the ambassadors and the retinues could tell immediately that this is the queen and the king together. And, you know, you see matching clothes and portraits of couples as well. This is very common. So normally, Polish kings would go for the white and red, their sort of colours of the, you know, the white Polish eagle in the red field. And we don't have an explicit report on Bonner's clothes that day, but we know that she did have a dress in the right colours in her trousseau. So it's quite likely that she wore that one. And then, although in many cases, 
as you said, the marriage has already been performed by a proxy. There's still the ceremonial wedding to enact, and in most cases, a coronation to perform. What can we learn of the differences here between French and Polish customs? Or is it that there isn't much difference and actually the similarities are more interesting? There are a lot of similarities. And I think the wedding and coronation is actually something that you can really see resting on that bedrock of European culture and European royal court culture, particularly. But there are some differences in how, especially in how marriages are framed culturally. So in France, we get, as in England, a lot of pageants. So the Queen's procession to or from the cathedral is accompanied by pageants. And these are little scenes being enacted or just little sort of tableaus of, you know, symbolic, allegorical figures. You get virtue, you get in the sort of French Valois and English marriages, English Tudor marriages, you get the French Willies and the Tudor Roses on a bush together, things like that. And then in Poland, you get none of that, actually. There is none of that sort of theatrical element. You get a lot of speeches. <laughs> and I think this is linked to the parliamentary culture, in part, where this ability to make speeches was highly valued. So when Bonnat travels, so she meets Sigismund the Old, as all brides do their husbands in the 16th century, outside of Krakow. And then she enters the city on the north, through the north gate, and travels down to the royal castle, which is the sort of most southern end of Krakow at the time. And she's welcomed with various speeches which praise her virtue and beauty and education and especially what a good mother she's going to make to all of those princes and princesses. So actually the content of both the speeches and the pageants say, in France or England is quite similar in that way because it emphasises what the society thinks the Queen's role is, which is to mostly to bear children but also to protect the weak and the poor, as the king is meant to be this slightly strict sort of father to the subjects. The queen is meant to fill in this gap of protecting the, actually the vulnerable, to be pious. And so there are all of those expectations that are placed on those queens. And some queens really struggle to fit into those roles, I think. Bonner is certainly one of them. So we get different forms culturally, but actually the content of what's being said is quite similar. That idea that becoming a mother is such a crucial part of becoming a queen, or really doing a job of a queen well, is an important one. Perhaps the most shocking thing I read in your book was this idea about how public the intimacy of consummation could be. <laughs> Tell me about that. So normally you have a wedding feast and then there is a sign is being given that it's time to accompany the couple to the bedroom. What you get in Poland is the couple is accompanied by the sort of crowd of the most important people and this is where dessert is being served in the royal bedroom. So they have some sweets, a little bit of wine and they sit around and chat and then a discreet sign is given again and this is when the people know this is now the time for them to go. 
to depart and to leave the couple to their devices, as it were. And we don't know that they went very far, but then, of course, so we have that bit. So it's being witnessed up to the point of the couple actually getting into bed together. And then on the other side of this, there is also gifts in the mornings. So Bona is given some very expensive jewellery by her husband. And this is all about, you know, signs of appreciation about the king being happy with his wife and that sort of thing. So it is a very public act because, of course, it is in the interest of the subjects to know that the marriage is being consummated. So, i.e., it might deliver on the goals of the marriage, which is to produce children. And I suppose there's an extent to which the marriage isn't legitimate, really, until that consummation has happened as well. But in France, this is taken to another level, at least by Francois I. I mean, this is not just a symbolically public moment. Yes. So Catherine de' Medici is married to Henry, Francis's son. Francis actually decides to stay and, as it's put in the documents, to watch them joust or something along those lines. And the historians have placed it as a sort of anxiety around consummation, making sure that the marriage is consummated, partly caused by what's going on in England at the time, where we've got a big marriage annulment case, which is all based around whether Catherine of Aragon consummated the marriage with Arthur, Henry's older brother, or not. And there are repercussions of this across Europe, I think, where kings are getting quite anxious about not allowing there to be ambiguity, I think. But it is quite extraordinary. I don't think I've come across another instance of this. And you can imagine it being quite highly embarrassing for everyone, perhaps. (laughs) I think that's the mildest way of putting it. The father of the groom staying to make sure that the jousting has happened is certainly a surprising moment. And so, of course, the goal, as you said, is to produce an heir, is to produce children. And actually, of course, childbirth was scarcely more private than conception had been. What was the ceremonial around childbirth and subsequently baptism? So this is quite different, actually, in France and in Poland. In Poland, baptism tends to follow childbirth quite quickly. And I think in some ways childbirth is more private than in France. In France, it's much more of a spectacle and they can wait quite a long time between childbirth and baptism. And this is partly about getting in the right godparents and trying to secure basically networks through godparentage. Whereas in Poland, what you see more often and To be honest, we don't have a lot of examples of royal birth from the 16th century in Poland because Bona has five children, but then subsequently her children don't end up having any, if that makes sense. So our sort of sample there is more limited. But from what we do know, sometimes the Polish king likes to choose sort of more local nobility as godparents. And whereas on the other side in France, 
you get this very elaborate ceremony, which is really interesting. You get a lot of light, playing around with light. The ceremony sometimes takes place at night and there's a lot of candles being held. And it's interesting, the symbolism, the rising new star or the rising new sun, which, of course, that symbol has been long linked to monarchy and kingship in France. Yeah, so it's very interesting because they are actually quite different in that way. And it could be partly, of course, linked to the fact that the Polish monarchy at the end of the day is elective. So there is no guarantee that Bona's son is going to become the next king of Poland. And she's very anxious about this because, of course, the Polish nobles might elect someone else. And this becomes particularly then strengthened in the 17th century when you get the free elections. So there is no guarantee that the prince actually will be the king. And I think that impacts queenship and ceremony to a degree as well. I think your work really helps us understand the nature of the networks across royal families in Europe and the connections and the similarities. But the other really important finding, it seems to me, is this idea that even though ceremonies were political, that doesn't mean they weren't also personal. Would you explain a bit more about what you found with that idea? I think we tend to lose sight of the fact sometimes that royal ceremony happens to real people who've got feelings about what's going on, who have their own various anxieties and just sometimes physical inabilities. So you get examples of the coronation crown being too heavy, for example, when Elizabeth of Austria is crowned, then her father-in-law actually sends someone to say, oh, if the crown is too heavy, don't worry, just take it off. But she wouldn't because it was her moment. So why would she take it off? But you've got those sort of physical things. But then also you have various squabbles about precedence and who sits where and who walks where. And it actually reflects people's real anxieties about status, about where they sit in relation to the royal couple. And also you get little reflections of real affection as well. So with birth of children, you have the pomp of the christening, but then sometimes you get those glimpses of those are real parents with real children and they've got affection for them. And this is particularly evident, I think, through prayer books, which were very small objects, which were carried in pockets, used as family albums. Catherine de' Medici had all of the members of her family painted, all of her children, some of them with spouses. She had even little children which died young or which died a couple of days after birth. She had them painted in that. She wanted to remember them as well. So I think it's too easy to think about royal childbirth as being just for these purposes of perpetuation of the dynasty. They are real parents and real children. Zig is one of the old, would record the birth of his children in his prayer book. I think some of them he recorded and some of them were recorded by his wife, Bona, so they passed the book around between them as well. So I think we have to remember that these are real families and they've got their own rituals, which are private, which are not necessarily 
the sort of pomp and circumstance of royal ceremony. We're marking this month 70 years of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II being on the throne in the United Kingdom. As a historian of early modern queenship, what is there in your work, in your studies, that resonates today? When you look at queenship today, is there any connections you make or any insights that you have because of your field of study? I think queenship is still about doing the job. And the job is remains in some ways similar. Of course, Elizabeth II is different because she's a queen regnant. But for queen's consort, which I think we can see a little bit with Duchess Catherine, is about this public facing role. It's about highlighting or shedding light on the vulnerable people. So she supports her charities, for example. It is still very much about bearing children. And I remember actually, I think it was when little Princess Charlotte was born and there were in newspapers, they had a lot of pictures of little toddlers and it was, we're looking for the perfect European prince for Princess Charlotte. And I thought, some of these things have just not changed. How we perceive or how we look at monarchy is still not changed. With Sigismund the Old, with the birth of his little daughter Isabella, for example, he would be looking around Europe thinking who will be the perfect prince husband. And this is still what the popular culture is doing now. So it's still very much, I think, the main thing is that it's still very much in the public eye and public scrutiny. So I think it remains quite a difficult role. And fascinating that these ideas of the nature of what it was to be a queen consort are still so much part of popular culture today that we've inherited them. Absolutely. Marriage, childbirth, piety in many ways as well. I think that remains, certainly. Yes, piety reconfigured probably now in order to be about charities, but the same idea is there. Yeah, but I think, didn't Duchess Catherine have... Was it a Christmas service or a carol service, something special for Christmas as well? So is this outward-facing piety linked, of course, in England, especially with the Church of England, which is the monarch is the head of the church, which so in many ways I think it's even more important. But absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your insights and for giving us a bit of a way into thinking about how a young woman became a queen at this time. It's really been a fascinating look and it suggests that there is so much more to be done by taking Eastern Europe into account when thinking about Europe as a whole. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you so much for listening to Not Just the Tudors. Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor and not just the Tudor love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age 
a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.